Welcome to this episode of HBCU. I'm your host, D. Brown, CEO. Joining me on the show today is Teresa Kennedy. Teresa is a graduate of Alcorn State University. Welcome to the program, Teresa. Thank you. Glad to have you on the show. So, Teresa, I want to just start really first by just understanding how did you select Jackson, not Jackson, but uh, Alcorn State University as your HBCU? Well, uh, it w actually wasn't my first choice. I really wanted to go to Tougaloo College um, simply because all of my friends were going there. Um, but Alcorn was a family tradition for me. My mother went there. My older brothers went there. And so I kind of somehow, someway ended up there. Really? Uh, and it was the best decision I ever made. Mm -hmm. So what do you rem remember about your freshman yeah, year? I freshman year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there's good and bad that happened, actually. The good thing was I did have a lot of uh, home team there, so they made it very welcoming. Um, I met so many friends that are still friends of mine today. Uh, unfortunately, one of my older brothers, who was a senior at Alcorn at the time, uh, was killed in a car accident um, while my freshman year. And so I was truly embraced by the Alcorn family uh, upon my return to campus. And, you know, it was in the middle of the spring semester. So, you know, school was about to wrap up for the summer. And uh, it's something that I hold very near and dear to my heart. I'll never forget. People still talk about my brother to this day, and that's yeah. been over 20 years ago. So, um, yeah, that's a memory that I always take with me. Although it was the tragedy is something that I do cherish just because of the love and support that was shown to me. Right, right. So uh, while you were a freshman at Alcorn, uh, were there any professors or faculty members that stand out in your mind as being really instrumental in your success that first year? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so my first year, I met Coach uh, Tony Dodgen, uh, who was his first year at Alcorn as well. And he was my college algebra teacher. Um, I met him and he was also the tennis coach at Alcorn. So he was soliciting players. And I had played, you know, recreational with my brothers, but never competitively. And so he he looked at me and he thought I looked a little athletic. And I did. I played basketball and softball in high school. And uh, so he asked me, would I be interested in trying out for the team? Well, school was already paid for. So it was easy to say yes to learn when I learned that he was going to give me a scholarship. <laughs> so uh, I made the tennis team. Uh, he didn't, I wasn't that great. So he did not invite me back the next year. <laughs> uh, but he brought me back my junior year. And after that, we actually won SWAC that year. So I'm a SWAC champion. Okay. And, uh, but Coach Dodge and I stayed in contact and he was a wonderful person throughout my entire college career. So what do you remember most about your time at Alcorn in terms of just the uh, experience? Oh, gosh. You know, Alcorn is a very small campus, so almost everyone knows everyone. 
you know, back then everybody didn't have a car. So if you had a car, you were kind of distinct um, because everybody knew who drove what. Uh, Then, you know, I had two older brothers that went to Alcorn. So a lot of people knew me from them. Um, It was just different. I got really involved in a lot of different activities, you know, from SGA my freshman year to uh, different clubs. I actually helped charter a chapter for National Council of Negro Women while I was at Alcorn. So, you know, I tell people, my children, my friends' children, um, all the time who are, have interest in Alcorn or any college, you know, get involved. Don't just go and sit in your dorm room, hang out on your phone and social media, get to know the people, because that really makes a difference. And I think that's what made a difference for me was getting involved. Yeah. So what uh, what was life like uh, during homecoming and big games on the uh, on the yard? Oh, wow. So my friends and I always had to have outfits <laughs> for the games. Yeah. So, you know, we spent Friday going to Jackson <laughs> to get outfits and uh, so we could style and profile on Saturday. Uh, football games were really big. My family at the time, my parents would drive up and tailgate. So, you know, all my friends and I got fed that weekend and we had leftovers for a few days. So that's always a treat. Everyone, if you're in college, you're really looking for leftovers. Right. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, <laughs> you know, basketball season at the time was really, really big at Alcorn, too. Um, we had won several SWAC championships. Uh, we had really good teams at the time, men and women's basketball. And so that was really a fashion show, too. Uh, you always had to be ready and walking at the right time because everybody could see you and your crew coming in. So it was a big deal for us. And I really enjoyed um, my time there at Alcorn fall, especially the fall, but the spring was really, really, really fun too. So how do you feel Alcorn prepared you for your professional journey? Well, I was a business student. And so uh, one of my professors that was really, really instrumental and really uh, had an impression upon me was Dr. Waters. Um, She was not only my soror too, later became my soror because I later pledged Delta there. Um, but Dr. Waters was very strict. Um, you know, I got into my business classes my sophomore year. Uh, she played no games about promptness. She always meant about being on time. You know, if you were walking in her class at eight o'clock, you were late. Matter of fact, you didn't even get in. The door closed at eight. So that meant you had to be there before eight. Right. Um, she had a very strict dress code. <laughs> yeah, she had a strict dress code. We couldn't come to her class any kind of way. So in terms of that, just promptness, how to dress for um, certain environments, especially a business environment, um, she was very adamant about. Uh, she challenged us um, in our thinking, our ways, you know, um, and she was just overall a wonderful person. And, you know, she wasn't very tall. That was a thing, too. Um, Dr. Waters is about, I say, five two. And, you know, I remember my classmates, we were all tall people, but she never raised her voice. <laughs> she had she spoke with the same monocratic, I mean, same untone voice. And you heard every word she said and you totally respected her. She 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 demanded and commended our respect. And you you mentioned that you pledged Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated at Alcorn. And so talk to me about Greek life and uh, how uh Delta has uh, influenced you? So uh, long before Alcorn, Delta was my sorority of interest. 
uh, solely before uh, because of my mother. My mother also was initiated in Delta Epsilon chapter in spring of 66. Um, so it was always something I was interested in doing. Whether I went to Tougaloo or Alcorn, I knew that's where I wanted to do. Um, and then also growing up, I saw a lot of women in my community that were uh, Deltas and doing great things. So got to Alcorn, a lot of my professors, a lot of the women on campus were Deltas. So it was easy for me to see them and their impact and um, the influence they had over others. And so Greek life at Alcorn was quite interesting. Um, Everybody had a line going over like 98, 99. And so, gosh, it was was some of everything going on. A lot of activity, I'll say that. And uh, I have a lot of line sisters, but I love each one of them dearly. And uh, we still are connected and we're celebrating our 25th anniversary, uh, anniversary this year. So I'm really excited about the things we got planned. So let me ask you this. You leave Alcorn State University and then you begin your professional journey uh, to start your career. So what was your next move after Alcorn? Well, so I stayed at Alcorn to pursue a master's degree in agriculture economics. And um, that's where I met Dr. Wom, who had a strong influence over me um, in my time at Alcorn. I, I, I really regret this day that I did not meet him before uh, graduating and, and having the opportunity to really be under his his leadership and his care. Um, Dr. Wom was a, a Pacific Islander, uh, very humbled man, very direct man, a very caring man. Um, Dr. Wong was obviously became my thesis advisor. I, I majored in the one degree, <laughs> the one degree at Alcorn that required a thesis. I was in that program. Uh, and so Dr. Wong prepared me tremendously. He helped me uh, get an internship um, to USDA uh, in D.C., and I interned two consecutive summers. That first summer I was there, I noticed they gave an internship award out at the end of the summer. And, you know, I was there competing with other 1890s. I was there with students from Southern University in Baton Rouge, Alabama A&M, The Ohio State, Virginia Tech, uh, Purdue. All of us were interns. All of us lived together. So it was really an eye-opening experience for me. Spent two and a half months in D.C. that first year. I said I was going to get that award the next year. I came back. I told Dr. Wong I was going to get that award. The next year I went back, uh, got that award. I was offered a job opportunity in D.C. But I really wanted to come back to Mississippi, right? Yeah. And so I came back. And so that time really did, ex- you know, like I said, exposed me to a lot of different things, a lot of people, um, some really great connections. And I came back here, went to work um, for an agricultural bank in South Carolina. So I came back here just a couple months. By the end of the summer, I was offered a job at Ag First in Columbia, South Carolina. I still wanted to come back home. So I went there for a few months and uh, almost a year, I say almost a year. And the VP there took a liking to me, came back to Mississippi here, worked for the Ag Farm Credit Bank here called First South. And um, that was quite the experience, too. And I was there while I was there. I was also building my uh, my own business. You know, while I was at Alcorn. I knew when I was being a business student, I wanted to own my own business. At the time, I just didn't know what. Um, and so this was like early 2000s. Like, so 2000, wait, 2006. So 
uh, still early in the 2000s, 2008, I decided I wanted to start a business. Not sure what. Um, I, I knew I really wanted a storefront. Uh, a good friend of mine talked me into why not do something online? And I was thinking like, dude, I don't want online, right? Because I wanted a shoe boutique. I wanted a place where women could come and sit down and enjoy themselves. Then we got to talking about overhead. We got talking about expenses. We got to talking about costs. And I was like, oh, wait, you know, I can't do that. And I, I still worked a full-time job. So that did not work either. Uh, long story short, fast forward from that business, that first business that I created, I, I took a huge liking for marketing, mm-hmm. uh, which led to my other business, which led to 5520 that I started in 2012. And so um, a lot has happened in these 10 plus years with that. But I'm still standing, still going, still juggling the plates. <laughs> <laughs> so, te- so tell us a little bit, a, a little bit more about uh, 5520. So it's a boutique marketing communications development firm, I should say. Um, so I started out like most probably entrepreneurs, we think that we could do everything and, you know, anybody that needed help, you wanted to help them. Cause you know, at the end of the day, you were trying to get money, right? You were trying to build your business and, and grow it, scale up and all of that. And so I was doing communication, well, marketing, a lot of marketing mostly, um, for nonprofits, for persons, you know, other entrepreneurs, for right. small businesses, um, and it just really was exhausting trying to be everything to everybody. Um, but, you know, my biggest goal, with all of it was I, I really wanted to move the needle with people business. I wanted if they did business with me and I didn't always get it right. I have to admit that. And I don't think any entrepreneur gets everything right all the time. But um, I wanted to move the needle. I wanted if they did business with me. There was something they could say I helped them with that took them that moved the needle for, and took them to another level, right? So uh, I re- quickly found my passion w- working with nonprofits. Um, and that business really just off relationships. You know, I really have not had to really market my business. And that's been a huge blessing. That's been a huge honor for me. Something I don't take lightly. Relationships has really um, been at the, 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 the core of, What's May fifty five twenty last this long? Well, yeah, relationships is uh, that's what it's all about in business. Um, now you are also uh, an advocate for uh, reproductive rights, uh, climate justice, and uh, workers' justice. So talk to me a little bit about your advocacy work. Yeah, so one of my clients is a global nonprofit, and uh, a lot of the work that we do. Um, is centered around reproductive ju- justice, climate justice, workers' rights justice. Uh, before, though, I got inv- uh, took on a full-time role with them, um, full-time consultant role with them, um, I was always, always interested in reproductive rights, always advocating. Um, I would visit the Capitol. I knew legislators, not so much lobbying. This year is my first year as a lobbyist, re- having to register as a lobbyist. Um, and, and lobby on those behalf, those issues. Um, but I was always at the Capitol knowing what was going on and uh, being in the know, because what I found is so many people are just so unaware of what happens at the state Capitol and how the legislation and how the policy truly impacts us, right? Communities of color, Black women in particular, um, there was one legislation that happened this year 
that I, I can't take no credit for. You know, there were a lot of other women and people who were very instrumental in getting this legislation passed. Um, but Mississippi was the last state in the union, which may not even surprise anyone, but the last state to extend uh, postpartum care to mothers who were already receiving postpartum care if they were on Medicaid, right? Right. Uh, but we were able to get them to finally see the benefit of having a mother's care taken from three months to now extend it out to a year. Um, and I, I, I have not bore any children, but I, I know plenty of women that have and uh, plenty of family members, cousins, aunties, and all of them. Um, to know that three months is just not enough time for any woman after giving birth to really just care for herself and be a great mother to that child. So um, that legislation was passed. And I really commend those women who've been pushing for that. Uh, that means a lot. Didn't cost the state hardly any money. You know, if you hear about or keep up with anything Mississippi politics, you know that a lot of our uh, leader state leadership talks about the surplus, all the money that Mississippi has, and it's billions of dollars. This program, extending it out, is estimated to only cost the state about seven to ten million dollars a year. You know, and so um, that's one thing. Another uh, on climate justice, I learned a lot about climate justice um, actually through Heather McTeer Tony, very impressive sister, uh, Mississippi native. Uh, she is killing it out there doing her thing inside of environmental climate justice. But Heather used to be the uh, EPA Southern Region Director and she's an HBCU grad, yeah. shout out to her. Um, but Heather brought me to her office in Atlanta when she was the Southern Regional Director and just showed me, you know, how climate really impacts communities of color, you know, and I was really, my eyes really were open then. And since then I just started paying attention to the things that were happening as a result, um, all of it is connected. You know, right. when we talk about economic justice, we talk about workers' rights justice, we talk, talk about uh, reproductive justice, Black maternal health, all of it is connected. All of it is connected. And, you know, not the dots are very well connected now. We're just trying to make certain that other people know the connection and how it impacts our right. lives. And so, Teresa, just for clarity for the viewers who may not really get the picture when you talk about climate uh, justice, give an example of how uh, climate adversely uh, impact communities of color. Well, if you look at who lives, who likely lives around these plants, these different plants. Um, if you Google Cancer Alley, Louisiana, there's an area in Louisiana that has several type of plants around it, nuclear plants, different types of plants um, and the people who usually live around. And, and, you know, a lot of that reason stem from the housing probably was pretty fairly lesser. Right. And these that's what they could afford. And no, you know, to them wanting to home ownership, they're wanting to have an staff, you know, a, 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 what they would call a decent and, you know, affordable living for right. their families. They bought these homes. And I don't think for us, we're educated enough to know what the long-term impacts would be. Well, especially, so especially Cancer Alley, Louisiana. Ago, especially not years ago. Like now there's still a, probably a deficit in knowledge 
uh, in the community. But, you know, think about 50 years ago uh, when our grandparents or, you know, our parents may have moved to an area that was next door to a chemical plant or et cetera. And I'll come back to that, but I'll, I'll let you finish your point. But no, D, you're, you're absolutely correct. So I, we'll take it back 50 years. My parents have been married 54 years. I'm from um, a, a town called Moss Point. Um, my dad worked at Ingalls Shipbuilding and uh, he worked his way up, became the first black superintendent, ship superintendent there. Um, but at the time, you know, we're talking late 60s, early 70s. At the time, the jobs that we likely had were those jobs jobs that were highly potent um, as, as we hear asbestos a lot now mm. uh, we know people that probably have died and suffered from some type of cancer um having worked at these different plants have worked at the, that that place my dad worked at yeah. um and 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 I don't know how much they're able to prove it but you know I do know people that work there and I do know people who died as a result of some type of health ailment and so over the time you you just learn that you're right Living near those factories has likely been the detriment or the downfall to, to certain people um, in terms of their health. And it's, and, and it's you know, abundant. We, we really just, it's abundant in, in, in communities of color. I, I'll give you an example. I grew, up, I grew up right up the street from a chemical plant that um, ultimately exploded. Uh, I was in college when that occurred, uh, and it, now it's just a brownfield site. Um, my architect, who's mm. also an African-American from Louisiana, uh, he used to talk to me all the time. He'll say, man, it's not bad for, for a guy who grew up across the street from the chemical plant. And so for years, I thought he was talking about me. And then one day he said he talked about the chemical plant exploding. And I, I said, wait a minute now. How do you know the chemical plant up the street from my house, house exploded? He said, I'm not talking about you. He said, I'm talking about me. So he actually had grown up across the street from a chemical plant as well. And it was years we talked about the chemical plant and I thought he was talking about me and he thought I was talking about him. But we both came from the same situation in two different states, two different communities. But I, I can guarantee you no one in that community knew that the chemicals, you, I mean, you could see it, the, pollut the pollutants in the air you know, every day and no one had the knowledge or foresight to say this is going to could potentially cause, you know, harm to us. So I, I feel that. Oh, absolutely. You, you go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make it more real. Um, when I talk about the cancer, well, I'm going to mention the cancer alley, Louisiana again. I met a young lady from that area. She is a, she travels the world now talking about her life, her lived experiences. She has a daughter that has now these element, these markings on her body. It wasn't born with it, but over time, now she's developed this, right? So her daughter's ashamed to go to school, she shared at a, a conference that we were at, um, just as a result of it. She has another child that has severe asthma. Um, I even bring it home back home for me again. I grew up on a street that to this day still floods, you know, not like it used to. And my parents bought their home brand new, um, lived on a street that only had maybe eight homes at the time. Now they're probably about 30 homes. Um, and I remember the street flooding, like people would park in our yard to get down to their houses in the afternoons. You know, now we work, right? You know, a kid coming home from school was like kind of fun. We thought that was swim water. Right, but, right. You know, my mom would have a fit and we couldn't understand why she wouldn't let us get in the water. 
Um, but, you know, it makes sense now because imagine all the pollutants that are in this water, right? I, hey, did the and same so thing. And so even that, I, same thing. even in, that, in, you know, we... we same thing. We but, we just didn't know better. And you we know, know in in, in uh, poor communities, a lot of times the flooding is caused by the, the the drainage system, the stormwater system being clogged up because there's so much foot traffic in the community that you throw things on the ground and whether it's footballs, baseball, basketball trophies, all end up in the stormwater system. So those areas flood uh, because of those drains are not you know are not clear and have not been cleaned. So. Uh, same thing, I, you know, we used to flood and we want to go out there and go swimming in the flood water, not, not knowing what was in the water with us. Absolutely. And, and not only that, I, I, I showed my mom a prime example, my street I live on now versus the street that I grew up on. Um, I, you know, I showed her, I said, mom, look at the storm drains. Like my street has, there's drains running down this whole entire street. Interestingly, I live on a horseshoe um, today and I grew up on a horseshoe. You drive on my parents' street, you don't see a storm drain. The only drain you see on my par- near my parents' street is on the main street that you turn off of. So that's a lot of water to have to run off. You know, they have a downpour, a heavy downpour in a matter of minutes. That's a lot of water that even on top of what you said, the pollution and the trash that's in the, the, uh, right. the storm way, right. uh, the drainage ways. Um, so that's in, that's on top of that. So now I got to get past that, but it also got to get to the drain. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's a huge issue. Uh, my parents probably would have never thought when they bought that home, but, but when they bought that home, it was like that. But get this though, the neighborhood behind my parents, <laughs> other, there were other people that lived in that neighborhood years ago and that neighborhood doesn't flood like my parents' neighborhood floods. Isn't that interesting? Wow. That that street doesn't look like how my parents' street looked. Right. My dad paid $3,000 in the 60s for an acre of land. $3,000. I was like, that's expensive, <laughs> you know? But, you know, he did it and it is what it is. So, I mean, all of it is just amazing and mind-blowing. But, you know, I, I, I thank him for even seeing value and owning Owning land like that. Right. Uh, but yeah, there's during, been at the, it's been at the cost. It's been at the yep. huge cost. Teresa, believe it or not, we're out of time. I'm going to have to have you back because this is a whole nother conversation in and of itself. We kind of got a little bit drawn down this path, but I think it was, it was very good information for people to hear. I want to thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show, but I don't want you to leave without presenting you with our HBCU Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> for your commitment to historically black colleges and universities. So you'll be getting that in the mail. So thank you so much once again for being on the show. And to my viewers, thank you for watching this episode of HBCU. I'm your host, D. Brown, CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me.